Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sarah Fenske. On January 3rd, President Trump ordered a drone strike at the Baghdad airport. The drone was aimed at killing a top Iranian general, Qasem Soleimani, and it hit its target. In the two weeks since, the world has been on a heightened state of alert, and at times, tension has erupted into actual violence. Tehran retaliated by striking U.S. military sites, although there were no casualties. The Iranian government also shot down a passenger jet by accident, it said. All 176 people aboard were killed. For most of us, this conflict may seem very serious, but it probably also feels halfway around the world. For Iranian Americans, it feels much closer to home. And joining me today to talk about it are two members of the local community. That's Dr. Bahar Bastani. He's a St. Louis University professor of medicine and board member with a number of local cultural organizations. That includes the Chesterfield-based Iranian American Cultural Society of the Midwest. Dr. Bastani, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. And we're also joined today by Javad Kasali. He's a local attorney and former national security prosecutor for the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. Javad, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me again. Dr. Bastani, you came to the U.S. from Iran in 1984. What brought you here? Actually, I was a faculty in Tehran University for less than a year. At that time, I realized that I was not hireable in any medical educational government institution because of my political religious views. So at that time, I decided to leave the country. I know these things are super complicated, but give us just the quick picture. What about your political religious views were an issue at that point? Uh, I was pro-revolution, and I was one of those young people. I was a medical student, uh, actually a fourth-year medical student when 1979 the revolution happened. We were all educated people, we were all the same line. But a couple of years into revolution, we realized it is becoming more and more autocratic. And when Mr. Bazargan, who was my great uncle, he resigned after less than a year of being a prime minister uh, of the Islamic Republic Revolutionary. Um, he said that he looks, he feels that he's like a knife that somebody else is holding the handle. So he cannot function like that. And that was after the U.S. embassy was occupied by some radical students. So we gradually realized that <clears throat> it has become a more and more autocratic and theocratic environment, and I was opposing that in my rounds with the students. Okay. And so that ended up bringing you to the U.S. At the time, did you envision that that would be a permanent move? No, I was thinking that <clears throat> maybe for two years, <clears throat> I did a fellowship at University of Virginia in Charlottesville. I said, I'll go back after that and just function as a faculty again, but things did not change. I did two years of senior and chief residence at University of Wisconsin in Milwaukee. And then again, things did not change. I came to Washington University, did research for three years, and that was the time I decided that doesn't seem to be changing in the direction that I feel comfortable to work with the system. So I decided to stay in the U.S. And now so many years have passed, and it seems like some of the things that you were hoping would change still haven't changed. Looking at all the time you've spent here, do you feel like you're happy with the move that you ended up making at the time you made, or do you still feel that longing for your homeland? I do feel longing for my homeland, and I go there every year. I go once at least, sometimes twice, give lectures in a number of medical centers and universities. There is no problem with that for me so far, uh, but I'm happy that I made the move because I feel a lot of my growth happened in this country in my religious and political views because I had the freedom to think and to express my viewpoints without 
any fear of uh, persecution. So this country did help me to actually advance my knowledge in politics and religion as well, yeah. Okay. So Javad, now your family came in 1977. You were two years old. I imagine you have no memories of living in the old country. But do you remember your parents talking about it as a little kid? A little bit. Um, you know, we moved here in 77, and then two years later, the revolution happened. And my first real memory of how the world was different was in 81, my little brother was born. And my mom, my brother, and I went back to Iran. So we're in Iran while the war with Iraq is going on. So you're watching the TV, you're seeing all of the stories about the war, you're seeing the pictures of the young people who are just killed a thousandfold. Um, and that was very, I mean, I was very impressionable then. Um, and then when we came back to America, we stopped in Frankfurt, Germany. My dad was a student and we were, my mom and I were on derivative visas for being students. My brother was a U.S. citizen. And we went to get our visas renewed. And it should have been totally administrative instantly. And the visa security officer who went to renew our visas was one of the, U.S. hostages who had been held in Iran for 444 days. Oh, my goodness. So he went across the board, and he was denying, wrote in our visas, never allowed in America, denied every Iranian, and we were stuck in Frankfurt at age, I think I was six at the time, for six weeks until we could get that fixed. And, it and was one man could just do that? He put, put some sort of bureaucratic hold on it? And he that... did. I mean, once somebody takes a red marker and writes in your passport, never let them in. Um, and it took us six weeks of getting Congress involved and my uncle involved and everything to get that fixed. And that was the first moment that I was like, wow, this is different. And then when I came home, I realized that we'd made this very big push to never call ourselves Iranian. Hmm. We called ourselves Persian because at the time, you know, the normal run-of-the-mill guy who wanted to cause problems thought, oh, we must be from Paris, you know, and you didn't want to be Iranian because then you were the bad guy, you know. And I still remember the yellow ribbons on the trees. So it was a very weird time growing up. Dr. Bastani, this idea of being Persian instead of being Iranian, is that something that, that you also used that language for a while? No, I was okay. <laughs> I mean, I was... I didn't have problem with that. And both are correct. Uh, in the Europe, they used to call Iranians Persians, mm -hmm. but in Iran, we call them Iranians. So, so it is a historic fact. Both are, yeah, both yeah. are correct, yeah. So, Javad, as you were growing up, um, I read an essay that you wrote at one point about all this for the New York Times, and you wrote that after the Ayatollah seized power, that this was no longer the country that your family had known. D did they decide at some point, yeah, we're never going back? Or was there always some discussion that it, if things change, maybe we will head home? Um, I think that... Our journey was very similar to Dr. Bustani's. I mean, my parents, that's where their family was, and that's where they wanted to go. And I think people in America don't realize how quickly seismic change can happen. You know, Iran, I see pictures of my mom from two or three years before we left Iran wearing mini skirts and at parties, and it was the most cosmopolitan place in the world. It was Paris, then it was Tehran. And then three years later, it totally changed. And it was very much a push of, you know, these outsiders are doing this to us. And they always wanted to go back. But these types of changes take generations to be unwound. 
Mm-hmm. And overall, I mean, you've written that growing up, you felt like you were just the most American kid on the block. Do you feel like the country was fairly welcoming to your family? Um, ish. You know, most of the time, yeah. The the world that we lived in, people didn't cause problems. But no, we absolutely had people cause problems or try to start something. But I was raised very early on to not run from that. You know, there are some people who just back off from that. But I was raised, no, you look that right in the eye. You call it for what it is. And it's it's been an interesting, and by interesting I mean horrific, change in the fact that around the revolution when I was really young, I remember a lot of this stuff happening. After 9-11, there was a little blip of it where I remember my brother being in the loop and he was probably 20 years old and somebody accosting him mm-hmm. about being Middle Eastern. And then it kind of died. And then in the last two years, it's bubbled up again. You know, My mom has a sewing shop in Edwardsville, Illinois. We've been in Edwardsville since I think 82. She's had the shop for 30 years. And last year after Trump was elected, for the first time ever, she had somebody enter her shop and demand to know her religion. So we're in different cycles. And right now, you know, even before the most recent stuff, you know, we've got a president who is otherizing all of us and is saying that you are just a bad person for being from where you are. Dr. Bastani, have you felt the impact of that as well in recent years with President Trump's election, even before um, this most recent flare-up in the Middle East? Did you start to feel a, a sense of insecurity? The sense is there, but I didn't confront that because I'm usually at hospital and I'm with generally very, very intelligent, highly educated, although I do see very diverse political views. But uh, nobody has confronted or done anything at work. And outside work also, I don't. And my patients are always very nice to me, so I don't see it differently. Yeah. So personally, you feel like you haven't suffered I have not any, any ill repercussions? Personally, but I do here in the community, sure. Yeah. So I know you don't want to speak for anyone else within the, the cultural society um, that you're very active with, but I'm wondering, what have you been hearing from fellow members in terms of these events of the past week? Is there a lot of anxiety at this point? Anxiety, yes, uh, but as Jawad correctly said, there is a very diverse community. There is no monolithic voice in the Iranian community. We have the large spectrum of the population who may hate Persian Iranian government or may love it. A small number would love it, but a a large number may not like it at all, but different degrees of dislike or disapproval also. So... The anxieties are with the, we have a lot of students, we have at least probably 40 postdocs and uh, very high level PhD student at WashU, probably 20, 25 at the SLU, and probably 40 at SIUE, and uh, many of them with the visas that they are afraid if they go back to Iran, and they have consulted me that their, their parents are sick, they had to go, but I told them that is the end of it, you will not be able to come back. Uh, people who are married and they cannot bring the wife or the husbands or they cannot bring the parents. So there is a lot of distress. And with the new events happening, the fear is that there will be even more restrictions or the travel on for people from Iran, which uh, is a highly educated population there. 
and many of them want to come for higher degrees, uh, PhD and postdocs, and uh, they are going to be definitely prevented from coming, which is a loss for U.S. as well as for those people who are applying to come because they are the best top of the cream, and uh, we have the one, we have the best edu- universities in Iran in the whole Middle East. So. So, I mean, you're saying this like this is this is definitely going to happen. There's going to be this crackdown on, on people coming from this country. Well, I there mean, already has been. Yeah. I mean, with the Muslim ban that, you know, my mom was one of the named plaintiffs in the case that went to the U.S. Supreme Court. But it has restricted any people to come from Iran to the United States with the exception of students. Okay. So, you know, my aunt, when my dad was sick and dying, my aunt had an approved visa to come to the United States. She'd been to the United States before. She was a widower in her 60s, and it was stripped from her. So you've put these people in this untenable position where it's you're here, you're studying. You know, Two years ago, I read that the most educated group of people in America are Iranian Americans, mm-hmm. um, and they're here studying, but they can't go home to see family members, their family members can't come here. And then, you know, that's a amount of stress on people that is constant. My mom last week, you know, was in Iran. And so when- Just coincidentally, she'd been traveling there? Yeah, she went, um, it was the two year anniversary of my dad's passing. She went to Iran for three weeks to see her family. She was flying back the day that they had not, that we started hearing rumors that Customs and Border Protection agents were grabbing Iranians. She flew back. You know, everybody was friends, family, acquaintances were worried about what would happen. She landed in Newark. We got her through customs. And then right when she landed at Lambert, and I was pulling into the parking garage, is when we heard that Iran had fired the missiles back. And then the next day is the day that a plane that blew up out of the same airport that she came from. I mean, that's constant trauma for people. That and had to have been terrifying, knowing that that could have been her just one day later. For sure. I mean, I look through our Facebook pages, and I have one of my cousins, her cousins, died in the plane crash. Um, you read about college students, a PhD student um, in San Diego who was getting her psychology degree. She died. And as Dr. Bustin said, you know, often when you watch television and you see the pundits, they give us binary choices. Either people approve of the American action there or they disapprove. Either the plane being bombed was Iran's fault or it was America's fault. Either Soleimani was a hero or he was a murderer. And that's not what I'm seeing. What I'm seeing is people are smart enough to be able to say both and. You know, yes, Iran is responsible for blowing up their own citizens. They should be held accountable, and it really calls to question, makes it very obvious how long they lied about it. But that wouldn't have happened if we didn't have unnecessary saber rattling over there. We're talking to Javad Ghassali, who was born in Iran and moved to the U.S. at age two. We're also talking to Dr. Bahar Bastani of the Iranian American Cultural Society of the Midwest. We need to take a quick break, but if you'd like to join our conversation, we will be taking calls after the break. We're wondering what you think is missing from the discourse right now when it comes to the conflict in Iran or what questions you have for our Iranian American guests. You can give us a call at 314-382-8255. That's 382-TALK. Or you can send 
us a tweet at STL on air or email us at talk at stlpublicradio.org. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com. And now back to our conversation. We're talking to Dr. Bahar Bastani and local attorney Javad Kazali. Our producer also spoke with Jale Fazelian. She is the associate dean of libraries at the University of Missouri-St. Louis, as well as a past president of the Middle Eastern Librarians Association. And when we asked Jale what she thinks is missing from the conversation or needs to be better understood right now, here's what she told us. The Iranian people are not the Iranian government, and I think everyone needs to recognize that. Um, They are caught up in the middle of this as well. They've been living under sanctions for years, and that has led to a detriment to many people in Iran. They don't get medicine. They don't get things that they need because of the sanctions that have been put in place. Um, So I, I do hope that people recognize that you know, government actors are not the same as citizens, uh, just as government actors in America aren't the same as American citizens. And that's Jale Fazelian. And Dr. Bastani, I saw you sort of nodding as, as we heard her remarks. Would you agree with what she said there? I would absolutely agree with her because repeatedly it said that, you know, the essential things and medicine can go to Iran. It is only for other economic sanctions. But this draconian economic sanctions, which is considered by me, as my personal view, it's not uh, Iranian-American society, cultural society of Midwest view. I'm only expressing my own views. These are causing major disasters life of life of the ordinary people. There is not enough food. There is not enough medicine. Because if no bank in Iran can deal with any banking outside Iran, there is no money. And also more than 90% of the oil revenue is cut. There is no money to buy these things. So even if there is no sanction on medicine and food, there is severe, significant shortage of medicine and medical supplies in hospitals. So ordinary people, especially middle class and low socioeconomic class, are really suffering from these sanctions, which are unhumane at this point. Javad, is that a perspective you share? Yeah, I think that if you look at the U.S. history with Iran, specifically within the Trump administration, Uh, you can see a few things. Um, First of all, anybody who's ever read or heard any of the stuff that I have written or put out there will realize that I have no love for the Iranian government. I worked in the counterterrorism field at Homeland Security, working against groups that that they were supporting. Um, But you look at our policy. Iran had a nuclear deal with the Europeans and the Americans that everybody says that they were complying with. President Trump pulled that deal based on statements he made before he was president, before he had any intelligence, put in sanctions. And the sanctions are working in the opposite way. They are hurting the people, yet strengthening the government. Mm -hmm. They're having more power. They have people who are being oppressed both by them and by money. It makes them stronger. When we look at the difference where Jala said about the viewpoints of the Iranian people, you know, Soleimani was brutal to the Iranian people. He's the type of person who pushed down protesters. At the same time, when you kill a he- close to a head of state, 
the people are going to rally around the government. Mm-hmm. Um, sort of brings everybody together. You've shot our guy. Right. Yeah, he's our guy. Um, and our foreign policy with Iran has just been totally backwards. It's You can see this in the justification of the U.S. government now in killing Soleimani. They killed him, and then they said, it's an imminent threat. Well, that's not an imminent threat. It was a threat that was seven months ago. Well, it really wasn't a threat that it was seven months ago. And we're backfilling on this. And this has been going on for 40-some-odd years. And Iran is a superpower in that section of the world. And it feels like everybody I talk to in the national security world, it sounds like we're just making this up. And maybe we are. No, we are. (laughs) No, no, we clearly are, you know. So David, one of our listeners, just sent us an email, and he writes, I'm sure you'll discuss this, but it's encouraging to see the courageous effort in Iran by protesters against the theocratic dictators. Uh, Do either of your guests care to predict where this will go? As we know, there has been some protests in the streets. Um, Yes, there was a very strong anti-U.S. sentiment in many of these protests. But then we saw some protests against the government related to the passenger jet being shot down. What are your thoughts on that? So let's go back to the anti-U.S. sentiment. Okay, First of all, Iran was the only country where after September 11th, the people of Iran on their own, went to their rooftops, hundreds of thousands with camera, with candles so that American satellites could see their support of America. You see there's over a million Iranians in L.A. County and Orange County. The idea that the general Iranian is against America is totally false. Mm-hmm. I was in Iran in 2000, and while I was visiting there, there was an anti-America rally, and I went to go see it. I went and saw, and I learned that these many of these people were people who are supported by the government because their siblings and parents had died in the Iran-Iraq war. And they were mandated to go out there. Mm-hmm. And they would go out there and they would chant for five minutes for the TV. And then immediately afterwards, they would take off their stuff. They were wearing Michael Jordan shirts. They all had Nike. They were all, you know, iPhones weren't a thing, but they were very pro-American. So there is some of that. What, I mean, this goes back to the poll. We have the president of the United States posting yesterday about how brave the Iranian people are for standing up to the government. And this is the same president who has put forth laws that say those brave kids are not welcome here. They can't come here for protection. They are bad people. They are evil. They are the worst in the world. They're going to kill us all. But P.S., they're super awesome, you know. (laughs) Uh, I want to go to the phone lines. We have Hale. Um, I think he's calling from UMSL. Hale, hi. You're on St. Louis on the air. This is Hale. Hale, um, not Hale. I'm a friend of uh, Bahar, and I I was calling to ask the the group there to talk about um, pluralism in Iran, uh, about minority religions. I know that there are Christians there, there are Baha'is, and uh, I, I wondered how how they are faring under what is essentially a Muslim rule. Uh, thank you so much for that call, Dr. Bastani. Yes, I would like to answer. Thank. Hello, Hal. <laughs> Hal, uh, thanks for asking the good question. Basically, the Abrahamic faiths like Judaism and Christianity are very well respected. There are two Christian representatives in the Iranian parliament, and they represented the Armenian and Ashurian or Assyrian 
communities and there is one Jewish representative in Iranian parliament out of like 295 or something parliamentarians. They are freely elected by their own populace. Uh, unfortunately, the Baha'i community doesn't have any representation and also there is one representation from the Zoroastrian faith, which is a very old, uh, maybe around four or five thousand years old religion. And, and, and you mentioned the Baha'is. Is there a large Baha'i population in present-day Iran? I don't have any numbers, but there is there is some Baha'i population. It's not, I mean, it's like, like Christians and the Jewish community. There is probably much more Christian Armenians in Iran. Mm-hmm. So Arme- uh, Christians have two representation, and uh, uh, Jewish people have one, and Zoroastrians one. Uh, the group which is under a lot of distress and uh, oppression is a Baha'i community because they are not by the government, they are not considered as um, Abrahamic faith. Or, uh, so Abrahamic faiths have freedom of worship, and the, uh, at least in one city that I have counted in Esfahan, there are 95 synagogues. Wow. In one city, That's 95 synagogues. That's something I think synagogues. many yeah. of us in the U.S. Um, would be very surprised by. We just we know so little about this country where we've had such involvement over the years. I would say that with my experience, it's a little bit different than that because I represent people who in you know, my practice is civil rights and immigration. In the immigration practice, I represent people from Iran with asylum claims. Before the revolution, one of the largest Jewish populations in all of the Middle East was in Iran. Mm-hmm. That population has been fairly decimated. Yes, there's, there are people there, and those that are there who are there 40 years later, some of them have um, some rights. But the population, one out of 200 plus isn't representative of what the Jewish population was before the revolution. And you say the population has been decimated. Has that been by attrition or has that been there's been a, a campaign to, to get them out? I think that there, there were, especially at the beginning of the Islamic revolution, there was a lot of keeping them from getting jobs, going after them in ways that they had to flee the country. Okay. You know, there were, um, there was that. While there is a Christian population there of Armenians who are Christian, they're treated very differently than somebody who was born in the Muslim faith and after coming to America or being in Iran converts to Christianity. That is not tolerated. And there are there have been examples of very, very sh- strict responses by the government. Um, yes, there are some minorities that are allowed, but the idea that this is in any way anything other than a theocratic regime that is protecting their own people, I don't think flies. And you said you're bringing these asylum claims on behalf of some of these religious minorities. Has the U.S. government been receptive to that? Or is, uh, you know, President Trump trying to crack down on certain countries, caught them up in, in that snare? So remember, I was at Homeland Security for years, and I used to sit on the opposite side of the table and see these cases. What we've seen is, you know, at the same time that America is saying, look at what the government of Iran is doing to their people, we're making it more and more difficult for those people to get protections here. And we've totally perverted what our asylum laws are in the United States. You know, they are very clear. They're based on the um, Convention Against Torture, where we're signatory to. And so what we're seeing with the Iranians is either if I can get their cases in front of an officer, we do pretty well because we document these cases very well. What the Iranian government does to people is very well documented, especially the women. 
You, know, you see a woman who is told that she has to cover her whole body because people will yell and scream at her. And then she comes to America and she's like, I could walk down the street in a bikini and nobody would care. But now these cases are just getting thrown into security background checks for two, three, four years where these people are in limbo. And we're seeing that across the board with Middle Eastern countries. So the push for this administration is absolutely to make it as difficult as possible for anybody to get asylum. Okay. And I did want to talk in our just last couple minutes here as we're talking to uh, Attorney Javad Kasali and Dr. Bastani. Um, one other point that when we talked to Jale Fazeli, and she's the local university librarian who is half Iranian, um, and talking about some of the anxieties and concerns of people who are Iranian-Americans um, here in the U.S., something that she mentioned has to do with the upcoming U.S. census. Let's listen. The census is about ready to get going this year. Uh, in 2020. And this is the first time in the American census that you can say that you are Middle Eastern. I worry uh, about people who will not self-select that so that we won't get an accurate counting of America and who we are, because people will be scared to self-identify as Middle Eastern. Previously, Middle Easterns were uh, just put in the Caucasian uh, section of the of the census. And this is the first time you can say you are Middle Eastern. And I have a lot of friends who are p- potentially scared to to do that, to self-identify, because they do not know how that information will be used. And that's Jale Fazeli. And um, Dr. Bastani, is that something that you've heard at all from members of your organization? People are concerned about that new category in the census? I think it's a legitimate concern. I haven't necessarily heard about from that people, but I would definitely see it's a concern because with the degree of bigotry that is happening now and is getting more and more and, and uh, polarization in this country, it is a dangerous thing. So it's legitimate to be concerned about that. Several people that we reached out to when we knew we were going to have this conversation on St. Louis on the air today, they told us that they were glad that we were having this conversation, but they themselves didn't feel at liberty to speak openly. And in some cases, these are people who were citizens, people who were born here. Why do you think that's the case right now um, for somebody who is, is born in this country, has full citizenship, that they might feel that anxiety of not wanting to put themselves out there, even on an a NPR radio show? Because Iranians and between a rock and a hard place. You have a president who, while he was running for president, basically said that Iranians are the worst people in the world. My guess is he probably never even really interacted with one. It was just his cudgel of racism, that and the wall, and basically villainizing Iranians and Mexicans. So you have a U.S. government that you are wary of. That's exactly what goes to the census. At the same time, you want to be careful about what you say because you're afraid that there could be ramifications for your family back in Iran. So how do you assimilate and try to signal to people, no, I'm one of the good guys, while also trying to not push it too far where there could be an issue with your family back home? It's such a tough balancing act. And in light of that, I want to thank you guys even more um, for the courage to come here today and, and to share your thoughts. So, Javad Ghazali, thank you so much again for joining us. Thanks for having me. And I want to point out to my mom that I did not cuss. <laughs> <laughs> Major bonus points for that. And Dr. Bahar Bastani, thank you so much for being here. Thanks a lot for having me here. Thank you. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU.